Luke 9:28 to 45. There are two incidents here. We'll read the first one and then proceed on to the second one. The first one is in verses 28 to 36. This is the transfiguration. And some eight days after these sayings, it came about that he took along Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different and his clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking with him and they were Moses and Elijah, who appearing in glory were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep But when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And it came about, as these were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not realizing what he was saying. And while he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my son. My chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and reported to no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. In this passage about the transfiguration, we, we will see many aspects, many truths, comparing the Old Testament to the New Testament, but specifically the attention and the focus is on the person and work of Christ. Who is Christ? And Christ has to be the center of everything. This is the focus of this passage, the glory of Christ, the center of everything. In verse 28, we see it says, Some eight days after these things. Now, after these things is the previous passage when Jesus had asked who the multitudes say that he is, and then he calls on them to deny everything and to follow him. And he also said at the end of that passage in verse 27, But I tell you truly, there are some of those standing here who shall not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Well, this passage in Luke chapter 9, as well as this passage in Mark chapters 8 and 9, Mark 8, 27 to 9 verse 1, all of these verses, they go together, likely. And what Jesus is describing here about not tasting death until they see the kingdom of God coming, it may well be this very incident, the incident that is described next in the narrative. Now, other interpreters will say that it, was, it would have been rather the resurrection in the day of Pentecost, and that could well be true as well. But this is more proximate to the situation and the context, so that's why I take that interpretation. We notice it says eight days after these sayings, eight days according to Luke, but Matthew, Matthew chapter 17, 1 to 8, and Mark 9, 1 to 8, both Matthew and Mark say it was six days, that there are six days between the sayings and this incident. This can be easily resolved. It would have likely been six full days between the sayings and this incident, but if we include the day of the sayings, six days passing, and then this incident on the eighth day, then it would account for why Luke counts eight days, a part of one day and a part of another day with six intermediate days. Matthew and Mark have the six intermediate days in mind, but Luke is including the the day of the sayings and the day of the transfiguration. He takes 
three of his disciples. And this happens occasionally in Jesus' ministry, that there are incidents that these three disciples, Peter, James, and John, and in this case, Peter, John, and James, as they're named, John and James were brothers, the sons of Zebedee. This Peter is Simon Peter, and these three disciples are brought into this special incident, this special occurrence of Jesus being transfigured. Why these three were chosen, the Bible does not say. It does not tell us why these three. But the fact that three were chosen is likely having to do with witnesses. Because it's not until after he has been raised from the dead are they supposed to preach and teach what happened in this incident. And not until he has risen from the dead. So at that time, as the Bible teaches, such as 2 Corinthians 13 verse 1, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact is to be confirmed. Every fact. This is the way the Bible expects the preaching of the gospel, the relaying of information about the facts and the historicity of events, and even in church disputes and in legal disputes outside in civil matters, two or three witnesses is the minimum in order to proceed to believe whatever is being reported by those witnesses. Otherwise, if you just have one witness, then we're not supposed to follow. We're not supposed to believe. Now, Peter, John, and James are here as these three witnesses, but it is Peter who makes reference to this incident in 2 Peter chapter 1, speaking of eyewitnesses and the need to verify the veracity of this incident, it comes up in 2 Peter chapter 1, presumably because there were skeptics who were denying the historicity of this incident. There were people who were saying, no, this thing that ne never happened, uh, you're just making it up. Jesus was not transfigured in some heavenly form while they all witnessed it. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, Peter addresses this objection. 2 Peter 1, verse 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to Him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Peter asserts that what he saw on the mountain was not a cleverly devised tale. He calls it the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is also an allusion to Jesus saying that he was going to come with power and he was going to come and they would see the kingdom of God. If we compare Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all of those statements are made by Christ. So Christ is likely referring to this incident and that's the way Peter takes it when he says that Jesus came with, with power and in, in his coming. And he's an eyewitness. He heard uh, the voice of God the Father. 
He received honor and glory from God the Father. Such an utterance was, as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard it. He's saying, we ourselves heard it. And what was the purpose? The purpose in verse 19, 19 to 21, to believe in all that Moses and Elijah said. Moses and Elijah represent the law and the prophets. Sometimes the Jews would refer to all of the Old Testament as the law and the prophets. And even the Bible does so as the law and the prophets, such as Luke 24, 25 to 27, Jesus refers to Moses and all the prophets. So there's Moses, the first central writing prophet, and then after, all those after him who uh, wrote the rest of the Old Testament, Moses and the prophets. And the reason for that transfiguration was to direct all the people to say what Moses and Elijah said was true, and they pointed to Christ. Just as God the Father now is pointing to Christ in this transfiguration. Now back to Luke 9. They went, it says that they went up to the mountain to pray. They went up to the mountain likely to be away from all the people, likely to avoid the crowds so that they could have quietness and solitude to pray. This is often what Jesus is doing. He's either preaching or he's praying. He's teaching or he's praying. This is the, 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 these are the twin main duties of a minister of the gospel, to teach the Bible and to pray and to teach others to do the same. This is what he's doing, and he is praying likely very intensely, and it, because it says in verse 29, And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different, and his clothing became white and gleaming. He is praying intensely, or as we uh, read about in Psalm 119, verses 145 to 152, there David says he cries out to God. He cries out to God all the time when he's praying, meaning he's praying with intensity. He's praying with fervency. Jesus is doing this as well. And then suddenly his appearance became different. His face became different and his clothing became white and gleaming. The parallel accounts will tell us that it was so white, it was like uh, whiter than any uh, laundryman can make a piece of clothing white. It was that white and brilliant. And elsewhere as well, it will tell us that it was as bright as the sun, white and shining and bright as the sun. This is how Jesus was transfigured. Now, he's transfigured here because this is an emblem it's an illustration, a foretaste of the way we will be when we see Jesus face to face. This is just a picture of the way we will be when we see Jesus face to face. Because it says in 1 John 3 verse 2, Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when he appears we shall be like him because we shall see him just as he is. We see examples of the glory of God in Revelations, uh, Revelation chapters 4 and 5 and 21 and 22. There will be no more need of the sun or of the light of the moon to shine upon us because the glory of God will radiate. They saw a glimpse of that right here with Jesus on the mountain. 
And it was not just to see Jesus in some miraculous form, but to give us an indication of where all of this is headed. You see, it's headed for glory, but the one who has the glory that we should follow is Christ. No one else but Christ. Verse 30, And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah. Two men, Moses and Elijah. Moses, the, the, the author and the prophet who wrote the books of Genesis to Deuteronomy, and Elijah, who did not write anything that we have in our canon, although there is an, uh, a letter that he wrote to a wicked king in the book of Second Chronicles. We have that letter recorded for us, but otherwise he was mostly, from what we know, a verbal prophet. A verbal prophet, not a written or writing literary prophet. And yet, he's an example of preaching the truth, preaching the gospel, standing firm, preaching against idolatry, uh, having to flee persecution, feeling left alone. He, he feels all alone and left alone. Well, both Moses and Elijah do this kind of thing. They both perform miracles they both preach the gospel. They both stand alone. There are very few people who truly follow them. Even with Moses, the crowds and crowds of multitudes who came out of Egypt, they're always railing against him. They're always nitpicking and fault-finding him. They're always complaining about something. And Moses has to cry out to God all the time because of that. So Moses and Elijah. But the greatest thing that they did, not their miracles, not their godliness, all have their due respect and place. But the greatest thing they did was they preached Christ. They preached Christ. We don't have, in the New Testament at least, an explicit example uh, as we do with Moses. Uh, we have, in the New Testament, an example of Moses, but not with Elijah. But I think Elijah by implication. In Hebrews chapter 11, it tells us specifically that Moses did know of Christ and Moses did preach Christ. In Hebrews chapter 11, it says of Moses, Hebrews eleven twenty four. By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Moses was considering the reproach of Christ's greater riches. The apostle tells us, Hebrews eleven twenty six. The reproach of Christ has, is not about his resurrection so much. It's not about his uh, being seated at the right hand of God, not about his eternal dominion, though by implication it includes that. The reproach of Christ is all the shame, all the suffering, and in his crucifixion. Moses was preaching the cross of Christ because he believed in the cross of Christ. That's what Moses preached. This is why we know that they were pointing people to Christ. And even Elijah, Elijah, I believe, was preaching Christ because according to Luke 1, 16 and 17, Elijah was a prefigurement of John the Baptist. John the Baptist would come in the spirit and power of Elijah. So if John the Baptist is preaching Christ, John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If he's preaching Christ, 
then how could John the Baptist be a fulfillment of Elijah unless Elijah was also preaching Christ? Elijah must have been preaching Jesus Christ. And we, we also know that everything that was written about John the Baptist had to be fulfilled. So, the sufferings of John the Baptist, the sufferings of Elijah. John the Baptist preaches the sufferings of Christ. Elijah preaches the sufferings of Christ. They all fit together. This is another passage that indicates that from Genesis to Revelation, there's only one true gospel. One true gospel. And we could also cross-reference Galatians chapters 1 and 3 for further study, where the apostle very adamantly asserts there's only one true gospel throughout all time. Well then, what happens after they see Moses and Elijah? It says in verse 31, Luke 9:31, who, appearing in glory, were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. What are they all talking about? They're talking about Jesus' departure. Now, this departure is the same word as exodus, the exodus. Now, with the exodus in, from the children of Israel out of Egypt and through the wilderness and then into the land of Canaan, the exodus has to do with all of those things. The exodus has to do with deliverance from slavery. Then it has to do with a period of trial. And by implication, the promises of the exodus are that there is a land to come, the land of promise, the land of Canaan. Well, in the same way, Moses and Elijah would have preached those as illustrations, types, and shadows of what Jesus would accomplish for our redemption. This is what they're discoursing about, that imminently what Moses and Elijah preached is about to happen. It's about to happen in Jesus Christ. And because Jesus does this, because Jesus dies on the cross, He's going to leave this world in that sense. He's going to die on the cross and leave this world. He's going to pay the penalty for our sins so that we're no longer slaves of sin. He's going to redeem us from sin. And then we will have to go through a period of affliction and suffering. Our wilderness wandering is the period between our conversion and our consummation. That is our conversion and our celestial glory until we see Christ face to face. This is our period of suffering. But Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, and when He returns, then we will be with Him forever and with the Father forever in glory. And we will be radiating like this. We will be without sin, without evil, without pain, without death. Nothing of this world will be tasted again when Jesus returns. 32. Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep, but when they were fully awake, they saw His glory and the two men standing with him. They are overcome with sleep. It's probably nighttime, or if, if it were daytime, it would be uh, a matter of them being fatigued and tired, probably, and needing and wanting to sleep. So they are overcome with sleep, though they should not have been. When they're in the presence of Christ, and when Christ is praying, shouldn't they model Christ? And shouldn't they pray as long as Christ prays? And then when Christ is done praying, follow the lead of their master? That's what they should have done instead of sleeping. But this shows how, how sluggish we are, how lazy we are, 
how, how much we are focused on the flesh and even weak in the flesh. Whatever the flesh wants, that becomes our first impulse. Instead of having restraint and instead of having resolved, instead of having fervency to cry out to God with our whole heart when we pray. We don't treat prayer that way. And when we don't treat prayer that way, we also sleep. Our minds also wander. And so in this case, they, uh, it says they were fully awake. They became fully awake. They saw His glory and the two men standing with Him. That would, would have been a startling scene. They, I'm sure, even though they had seen many miracles, they had not seen a miracle like this. And it would have startled them, especially after they had uh, fallen asleep. When they first awake, they, you can imagine they might have even thought that they were dreaming. They had to make sure that this was true. Verse 33, And it came about, as these were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, So these, that means Moses and Elijah at this point are about to leave. They're finished discussing the future events of the life of Christ, and now they're, about, they're leaving. And Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not realizing what he was saying. He blurts out, this proposal. Now, on the one hand, it might seem that Peter, seeing this heavenly experience, he wants it to continue. So in that sense, there is some good in the request. But it is also aimless and careless for other reasons. It's aimless and careless because he thinks that it's good to keep Moses and Elijah and Jesus together here longer and hopefully forever so that they don't ever depart and that there is no departure from these three men with the three that are in glory because he, he wants it to be, last a long time. But if it lasts a long time or forever, how is Jesus going to die on the cross? He's not thinking about the cross. He's just thinking of glory. He's not thinking of suffering. He's thinking of exaltation. That's all he wants. Also, he is kind of demoting Christ. Perhaps more than kind of, he is demoting Christ because he's putting Christ on the level of these three, giving them all three tabernacles. Why not say, I'd rather be with Jesus than anyone else. Yes, it's great to see Moses and Elijah, but the focus is, is deflected from Christ alone and put on all three of them with this proposal. So, and also Luke tells us that Peter did not realize what he was saying. He blurts this. It just comes out. It's his natural impulse to say these things. So, while he is saying this, notice verse 34, while he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Now, while he's saying this, God puts a stop to it. He puts a stop to this with this cloud. You see, when he is engrossed in himself, in his own thoughts and the flesh, it's wrong and it's contrary to the will of God. Now that the cloud is forming and they are engrossed in the cloud, the, the cloud covers them and overshadows them. Now he is consumed with the presence of God by force. Notice that too. It takes the presence of God by force 
in the human life to keep the human from speaking up and saying stupid things or from doing stupid things. It takes God by force to change the human heart. It does not take the human will to cooperate with God. It takes God by force in order to make a, an incident happen in even human actions to occur in, a, in such a way that He accomplishes His will for them. So they were afraid as they entered the cloud. They would be afraid because they know from many, many Old Testament examples that to be in the presence of God means you deserve death. And it's only by the mercy of God that you escape death. The saints of the Old Testament, those who did encounter God, that is, a pre-incarnate form of Christ, whenever they encountered Christ, a Christophany or pre-incarnate Christ, they encountered a merciful God who did not put them, put them to death when He appeared to them. And this is why they are afraid. But God does not intend their death, and we know this from what happens. 35 says, A voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my Son, my Chosen One, listen to Him. My Son, or my Beloved One, my Beloved Son, listen to Him. Chosen or, or Beloved, Chosen is probably a better translation, though we do know that God considers Jesus His Beloved Son as well. He's God's Son, uniquely His Son, not as we are, as adopted sons in the family of God. It's not as we are, but He is a unique Son because He is His Son by nature. He has a divine nature, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons, one God, from all eternity past to all eternity future, there is no other God besides this one true God. And the Son, or Jesus, is the, the Son of the Father. So there's Father, Son, and Spirit. Before Jesus took upon human flesh, He was still the Son with only an invisible spirit, divine nature. When He took upon flesh in His incarnation, He took upon an additional nature, in the person, the one person with two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. And this one Son is God's chosen one. You may say, well, we're also chosen of God, are we not? Does, that, does the Bible not say, Titus 1.1, that, that for the faith of those chosen of God, Paul writes that letter in Titus 1.1? Of course, we are chosen, but we are chosen because God has adopted us Though we are unworthy, and by nature we don't deserve to be with God, He has chosen us to be with Him in Christ. But in the case of Christ, He's chosen in the sense that He is the chosen means of our salvation. He is the only mediator sent from heaven to redeem us from our sins. And because of this, listen to Him. We listen to Moses and Elijah to the extent that they are telling us about Christ. That's why we listen to them. We don't listen to Moses and Elijah just because they were inventive religious men or that they claim that God spoke to them. So we pay attention to them. It's not for any of those reasons. Though God did speak to them, He spoke to them to write true words, refined words about Christ. So we ought to listen to Christ, not to a mere man, only as the man teaches us of Christ. This is why God speaks. 
to remind them of this truth. Not only them, but all of us. It's very easy for us to be preoccupied with Moses or be preoccupied with David or Isaiah, to, to, to be preoccupied even by a modern man or even some great man of history. It's easy for us to be infatuated with those individuals because of their great feats, because of the number of people who follow them, because of their accomplishments in academia, because of the number of books they write, because of how eloquent they are. It's easy for us to do that. And this is why God says, God the Father says, listen to Him. If, if the people are not preaching Christ and drawing people to Christ and the Word of Christ to examine everything according to Christ, they are not worthy to pay attention to. In fact, they should be rejected. If they're not preaching Christ, they should be rejected. Preaching Christ and the Word of Christ is rare in our modern era. In fact, it's rare throughout history. If anybody reads any of the commentators of history, and even uh, a reading of the Bible, even a casual reading of the Bible, we see that in every period of the biblical period, uh, biblical eras, there were few people who believed compared to the many who lived in that generation. Few compared to the many. That's the way it is today. It's not uncommon for people to walk up to a pastor who is preaching Christ and the Word of Christ to say, why do you talk about Jesus so much? Or why do you always talk about the Bible and why don't you say anything about anything else? Those things actually happen. They happen all the time. Whenever there is a faithful preacher of the Bible, there are critics in the audience who are there for a show and not to worship God, and, and they don't want to know the Word of God. And they are the critics who, who will walk up and say, you're preaching Christ too much, or you're talking about the Bible too much. Why don't you talk about something else except the Bible? Well, we're not supposed to, because God said here, listen to Him. And how are we going to listen to Him unless we know what His Word says? We need to have the true Jesus and faith in the Word of truth. Verse 36 and when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and reported to no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. He was found alone when the voice had spoken. When it finished speaking, the voice of God the Father. When the Father quit speaking, the only thing they saw, the only one they saw was Jesus. Why? To highlight what was just said. That we have to only focus on Christ. Nothing else matters. Christ it only matters. Our vision should be fixed on Him and no one else. That's why it suddenly ends this way. The voice stops speaking and Christ is there alone. They kept silent. Luke doesn't tell us why they kept silent. And in those days, they didn't report it to anyone. But when we read Matthew and Mark, the parallels there... They tell us that Jesus had told them to keep it a secret until he was raised from the dead. Then proclaim it. Keep it a secret until that time and then proclaim it. Though the text of Scripture doesn't tell us why it happened, we may gather from John 6:15 that God was preventing the multitudes from coming to take Jesus by force to make him king. So this is why... Sometimes Jesus told his disciples, don't speak up, keep calm, keep quiet, don't report any of this 
until it's the right time. And the right time would come upon the resurrection and also the day of Pentecost. Those are the two main times when they were allowed to speak up about the things that they had seen and heard. Well, we're not done comparing Christ to others. This next passage in verses 37 and following, 37 to 45, will also compare Christ to others and highlight the superiority of Christ. Not only of Christ the person, but now of Christ and His power. We saw the power of God the Father in the previous passage, the one we just explained, and now we'll see the power of Christ. 37. And it came about on the next day that when they had come down from the mountain, a great multitude met Him. And behold, a man from the multitude shouted out, saying, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only boy. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams, and it throws him into a convulsion with foaming at the mouth. And as it mauls him, it scarcely leaves him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, and they could not. And Jesus answered and said, O unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. And while he was still approaching, the demon dashed him to the ground and threw him into a violent convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. But while everyone was marveling at all that he was doing, he said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears, for the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand the statement, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this statement. Well, very suddenly, they are alone, and then the next day, there's a multitude, because they know where he is, and they're waiting for him to come down from the mountain, and they want help. The multitudes want help, as they typically do. But one man from the multitude shouted out in desperation, because it says in 38, And behold, the multitude is there, but one man was very, very desperate. And so he shouted out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only boy. He knows who Christ is, identifying him as teacher. I beg you. He begs him. He knows that he's got nothing, that he is desperate. He's got no means to help heal his own son and his only son. And what's the problem? An evil spirit. There's no angel doing this. It must be a demon, an evil spirit. And it says, a spirit seizes him. He suddenly screams. It throws him into a convulsion with foaming at the mouth. And as it mauls him, it scarcely leaves him. This father and even the son, whenever this happens, they are in misery, especially the boy, in misery. There is no hope. They are hopeless. There's no way to overcome the, this great evil spirit, the power of this great spirit. They want deliverance. This is a real incident. These things actually happen at that time, and they also actually happen throughout history and even in our period. These are real incidents. The devil is real. The devil prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The devil does inhabit or demon possess or, or possess people. That's why we call it demon possession. The devil does do these kinds of things. He does it 
and he his uh, his his goal is to destroy people, to to afflict them, to torture them, and to kill them. The devil comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. John ten, Jesus said, "This is all the devil wants to do," and this is a dire example of that very situation. Very, very hopeless. So what should happen when there is a hopeless and dire dilemma before us? What should we do? In this case, this man says, I begged your disciples to cast it out, and they could not. When he says, I begged your disciples, he does the right thing. And if we take the parallel accounts in Matthew 17, Matthew 17, 14 to 23, and Mark 9, 14 to 32, in Mark 9, 24, this father has a bit of faith. He says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. He does have that, but the ones who have the ministry, that is, the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and even others who are following Christ and among His disciples, even among the twelve, those who are following, they are not exerting the kind of faith that's necessary to heal this boy. We, we know this from Matthew 17 and Mark 9, but also right here in verse 41, which I believe Jesus is directing this statement to the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and all the other pretenders in the crowds. Because he doesn't call, as far as we know, he does not call his own 12 disciples unbelieving and perverted generation. But he does call the scribes and Pharisees those kinds of things, such as Luke 11, 29-32, and in, in Matthew 12, 38-42. In those passages, he does push back on the scribes and Pharisees and call, calls them a wicked and adulterous generation, an evil and adulterous generation. We also know that he's not directing this, he's not directing this, um, this sigh or this, um, this angst in verse 41. He's not delivering this angst to the Father specifically because in verse 41, in the original language, the Greek language, the you, how long shall I be with you and put up with you, is not in the singular. In English, it's hard to know the you, whether it's singular or plural. But in Greek, there is a singular form and a plural form. The Greek language has the plural form in verse 41. So he's not, he's not condemning or he's not chiding the Father for lack of faith. He's talking about the people all around who do not have faith to pray to God to heal this boy. So, verse 42, And while he was still approaching, the demon dashed him to the ground and threw him into a violent convulsion. This is to show that this, this problem is persisting to the point that it takes Jesus, to the very moment that Jesus heals this boy, this Dilemma is right there. And it's also showing that it's a real situation. Jesus actually saw it. It wasn't made up from, the, from others. This was a real, real dilemma that the Father 
and this boy experienced. And Jesus saw it, and Jesus, it says in verse 42, rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. Unclean spirit is a demon or a devil. This unclean spirit was enslaving this boy. And it took the power of God, the power of, of Christ specifically right here, to heal him. He heals him and gives him back to his father. There was a distance between father and son. Not emotionally, because the father longed for his son. But in terms of this inability of the son to be released of this and to have a, a right and normal relationship to his father. Jesus restores this. This is also, even though this is a physical healing, it is also representative of spiritual healing because the gospel's intention is to bring believing parents and believing children back to each other. Though they were alienated because of their sins, they come together. As it says in Luke 1, 16, He will turn back many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. And it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That's what happens here. But we should not just be focused on the physical healing, which is important. It is also spiritual. The spiritual is more important than the physical. Well, the people, when they see this 43, they were all amazed at the greatness of God. They know what Jesus did was only by the power of God. Jesus was no regular prophet. Jesus was no regular man. He was no mere human teacher. He was nothing of that. He was acting and declaring things based on the authority of God. And this is why they exalt the greatness of God. The greatness of God becomes our focus when we see the power of God to overcome a spiritual tragedy. The greatness of God is best seen when we see God overcome by His power a spiritual tragedy. They saw this. They saw it in the in the physical and spiritual sense with this young boy. But though that is good, the Bible constantly, and Jesus here, shows that before we can bask in the glory of God and continue in that glory of God forever and ever, it has to be preceded by suffering. It has to be preceded by humiliation. It has to be preceded by men scoffing and persecuting Christ. So Christ's suffering precedes glory. And not only with Christ, but with all of us. That's why it says, 43, But while everyone was marveling at all he was doing, he said to his disciples. You see, everyone's marveling because that's what people usually want. They want to have glory, they want to have comfort and peace, they want to have ease, they want everything to go their way now, and they just want to think about that. They don't want to think about any afflictions, they don't want to think about persecution, they don't want to think about dying for Christ, 
but that's not the right way. First, you have to understand that suffering precedes exaltation. That's what, why Jesus, while they're marveling, puts attention back to his cross. The cross precedes resurrection. So he says, 44, let these words sink into your ears. Make sure they stay there. Make sure that you don't hear them and they bounce off your ears. For the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. What did he mean by that? Going to be delivered into the hands of men. He didn't mean simply that somebody is going to uh, physically beat him up and then he's going to recover from that and he's going to have a, a long life and the millennial kingdom and the eternal reign of Christ is going to start right after that. He didn't mean anything like that. We know because of 922. What did he mean? The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. He actually says that he is going to be killed. That's why he's going to be delivered into the hands of men. He'll be arrested so that they can put him to death. They were supposed to let these words sink in. They were supposed to muse and meditate on those words. But what happens? 45. But they did not understand the statement. And it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this statement. Jesus clearly told them what was going to happen. They knew what was going to happen, but they didn't let it sink in. They didn't think about all of its implications. They did not believe it with great zeal and enthusiasm. They didn't believe it that way. They did believe it. They did know about it. But they did not let it sink in. And they didn't understand what all Jesus implied by his death and resurrection. That's why it says they did not understand the statement. They were afraid to ask him about the statement. They were afraid to ask him about the statement, perhaps because Jesus would rebuke them. Do you not know? Has it not been told to you? Is it not written? Did you not never read? Uh, how are you, the teacher of Israel, do not understand these things? Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand? He might say something like that and it would humiliate them. So they're afraid. Perhaps it's for that reason, but also perhaps it's because they know exactly what Jesus is saying and they don't want to camp on that thought. They don't want to camp on the thought that Jesus is going to die and that their master, their master that they love, their beloved master is going to die and they need to follow in his footsteps. He's going to die and rise again, so they must die before they rise again from the dead. And just as he was persecuted by evil men, they will be persecuted by evil men before they are resurrected from the dead. <coughs> Jesus would have spoken like this time and time again with his disciples. That's what he said in 923. And he was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. He said that. They knew that. This is the thought that they did not want to consider or they did not want to consider it for very long. In their mind, yeah, that's, that's for us too, but I don't want to think about it. I don't want to think about it. I'd rather think about pleasant things. I want to think about 
uh, heavenly things. I want to think about glory. I want to think about release from suffering. I don't want to think about suffering. But we have to think about both together in their proper context. Both go together. So they are to be blamed, no doubt, for this sin of not wanting to contemplate the sufferings of Christ and the sufferings of Christ as it relates to themselves as well. They are to be blamed for it. But also, it's the sovereignty of God at work here. Let's not miss that part. The sovereignty of God, as it says in verse 45, it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. Well, who concealed it from them? Who concealed it from them? When it is like this, in the passive voice, the passive voice means that the subject is being acted upon, and sometimes the subject is a person, or the truth was concealed from them. So the truth was acted upon by an outside force. And who is this outside force? Well, it would be God. It would be God. It would be similar to Matthew 7, 7 to 7, 10, when Jesus says, Ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. It shall be opened to you. Well, if we knock on the door, who's going to be the one opening the door? God, right? He's the one who's answering prayers. That's passive voice too. It shall be opened to you. God opens the door when we knock. Let's see more examples of this, and this will show uh, from Luke itself that this is clearly what Luke is teaching here. Luke chapter 18, Luke 18, verse 34. After explaining again that he's going to die, be persecuted, and then also rise from the dead, Luke 18, verse 34, And they understood none of these things, and this saying was hidden from them, and they did not comprehend the things that were said. They did not comprehend the things that were said. There too it says, This saying was hidden from them. That's passive voice. Was hidden. We have to ask, who did the hiding from them? Let's turn to Luke 24. Luke 24, on the road to Emmaus, and then when they break bread, and and then when Jesus encounters them, um, eating fish, fish and bread. Luke 24, 16. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. The two disciples on the road to Emmaus, when they encounter Christ, they know who Christ is. But at this point, it says, their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. Then these same two disciples in 2431, when Jesus breaks bread, 2431, and their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. Their eyes were opened, were opened. Who opened the eyes? 35, and they began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. He was recognized by them. Well, who made them recognize him? I think 2445 will close the circle. 2445, Jesus is with his disciples in another appearance. They eat bread and fish, and it says in 2445, 
Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He opened their minds. Jesus opened their minds to understand. At various points, God withholds understanding from them so that in due time, He can open their minds to understand. And in the meantime, rebuke them for not understanding. Chide them for lack of faith. This teaches both human responsibility and the sovereignty of God at the same time. Human responsibility, they are responsible for not understanding and not believing, but God also sovereignly, providentially withholds information from them, withholds understanding from them, closes their mind or closes their heart so they don't understand an aspect of it or don't pursue an aspect of the truth until God is ready to open their understanding. This is the way these incidents occur throughout the whole Bible, not just in Luke, not just with the twelve disciples, but throughout the Bible. This is here to teach us that the gospel must be understood and the disciples do understand the gospel but they don't understand it completely. And they will not understand it completely until God reveals it to them in a fuller fashion, which He does with the twelve disciples the longer they are in Christ. And that's the same thing God does with us. The longer we're in Christ, He grants us greater and greater understanding. In the meantime, we are guilty and culpable for what we don't understand. So, in the meantime, we need to overcome that prayerfully, with ardent prayer, as Jesus did, and as Jesus rebuked the, the, the unbelieving and perverted generation for not ardently praying for that boy to be healed. But we, through ardent prayer, should seek for understanding. Pray, pray, pray. The Word of God and prayer for us, all modeled by Christ. Depending on Christ, the Word of Christ, the power of Christ in all of this. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.